First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. Good morning. Hey, I brought something with me today. I got it. I have it hidden back here. Um, I've been amazed over I don't know the last decade or so at the changes that have come in the food market. I don't know if y'all have as well, but so as you know, uh, Pam and I have a Friday morning date to Walmart every week to get our grocery shopping done. The, the romantic man that I am. We are, we are almost 30 years married, um, and so uh, she's kind of gotten to the place where she knows there's just not going to be much improvement, and so uh, and I think she's okay with that. I mean, hey, when you get this, what else can you want, right? So anyway, so um, I'm in the, uh, so I'm over in the aisle, and it's an end cap, and it's kind of by the snacks, and and uh, I don't get to eat these things anymore, but they're pretty, they're, at one time in my life, they were pretty amazing. Y'all like these? Do y'all like these? These are pretty, these are pretty awesome. Um, so I just get to watch people enjoy them, and, and um, uh, I'm not going to share this morning, um, <clears throat> at least right now. But one of the things I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to kind of show you that one. Um, my Bible's not thick enough, but anyway, you've seen that. But then I saw this one Friday. Have you seen this? This is firework Oreos. They have Pop Rocks in them. Do you remember Pop Rocks? As a kid, I loved Pop Rocks, and so Savannah's like, you want one of these, don't you, Savannah? Yeah, I'll share after church, okay? <clears throat> so I'm, I'm standing there at the end cap looking at that, and so I took a picture of it. Because I thought, okay, as a kid, I would have loved this. Now, I loved this, but I loved Pop Rocks. But, I mean, as if, if you know, when I was a kid, y'all, y'all recognize this now? Things were, things are much better now. There are much more better things to enjoy now than when we were children. We used to think around, sit around, my friends and I, and think of things. Man, wouldn't it be great if in milkshakes you could do this and all this kind of stuff. And so I think my generation of people are now in power at Oreo now and stuff. And so they're the ideas they had in the forts that we used to build. Remember when kids were always outside all the time? Remember that? Instead of inside and stuff. You know, we used to have these great imaginations. But anyway, but I'm standing there and I'm thinking of the... Basically, the idea is what happened was is that these things were not being sold as much, and so the marketers began to think, okay, we've got to improve the original. And so, the, and so if, you, if you've gone to the Oreo, I think that they have cinnamon bun Oreos right now. Uh, you know, again, I don't get to eat those anymore, but they've tried to trick up Oreos and things, and, and, I, and again, I would love to, I would eat one of these right now before the sermon even started if I could legally do it. But I had an idea as I stood there in Walmart on Friday morning, and the idea was simply this. You know, when it comes to church and when it comes to biblical counsel, we don't want to trick up what God has established. We want the original. Now, it's cool for Oreo to do it because it just, the taste buds like that and enjoy that. But it's not good for us to, 2,000 years later, after the scripture has been written and it's been established, that we somehow think we're smarter than the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago who gave under the inspiration of himself the writers to write these words to us. And so I just wanted to remind us this morning because we're going to look at a subject matter today that I think is really relevant. Um, You will see today that uh, either you're in this situation or you are 
uh, friends with someone or you have a parent who's this way or a cousin or a brother or a sister who finds themselves in the situation that Peter's going to set forth for us. And I would just want to put forth this morning simply this, with all of the issues in regard to marriage that we find in our culture today, um, I just want to say this, so many struggles connected with that. Let's give his word a fair shot today. Let's, let's see what his word has to say and let's embrace um, what is there. And I've got, uh, before we get to 1 Peter 3, I've got a number of things I want to share this morning. And so uh, the text this morning is going to reveal to us how do you relate to someone if you are a believer and you are married and your spouse is not a believer. How do you relate to, respond to, how do you deal with the reality of that? And Peter's going to give some great counsel today. And the reason he is, is we are in this section where he's sharing that the primary aim of a believer in the world that you and I live in, the primary aim and ministry that we have is from our knowing him that we would evangelize or we would tell people, we would want to win people to faith. And we have been walking in these weeks from chapter 2, I believe it is verse, uh, from chapter 2, 13, all the way to chapter 3, verse 8, that we will get to uh, here, or actually through verse 7. This whole section, he's talking about, you're going to deal with the reality of things, and the whole purpose in all three of these areas is to win people to faith. And so we looked at that a Christian has to relate to government. And so we looked at that, and that's verse 13 through through 17 of chapter 2, I believe it was. And then he talked about how do you win in the workplace, where you live, where you work, how you function, how do you be an influence there? And he talked about slaves, household slaves, in relating to their masters. And now he's going to talk about the third area that all of our lives touch as a Christ follower is the, the family relationship. How do you win others in the family relationship? So all three of our lives touch every single one of those, the social aspect of our lives, all three of those, government, the workplace, and marriage and family. And we will spend the next two weeks talking about marriage and family and working on and living before, <clears throat> and living before a spouse um, who does not have a relationship with Christ. As Peter writes these words in the first century, let me kind of give you a background, a historical background of what marriage and family was like in the first century. It was very highly patriarchal, um, where the husband held all of the power. Um, it was not based, marriage was not based on real love, encouragement, and mutual support. Uh, many of those people in the first century who were single, they chose to remain single so that they could continue to live um, an immoral lifestyle and do whatever they wanted to do. Those who did choose to be married, mo- many of them chose to remain childless. Marriage at the beginning of the first century was so bad that Caesar Augustus passed a law that all men from the ages of 20 to age 60 and every woman from the age of 20 to 50, they had to get married. And he put some little caveats with the law that was passed that you could not inherit property if you were single. So if you were single, didn't want to get married, but your parents owned property and you wanted the inheritance from that to get that, you couldn't do that anymore. And so he created some things to force people um, to be married. And the reason for all of this was that at the turn of the first century, when Caesar Augustus was in power, marriage had so disintegrated that it was on the edge of dissolution. 
um, pedophilia, incest, prostitution, all of those things were just normal case for what was taking place in the society. As a matter of fact, a man had so much power over his wife that under Roman law, he could kill his wife for whatever reason he wanted to. She had no rights and no recourse um, in many, many different things. And with all of that in mind that I've just shared with you, Peter writes some counsel about marriage. Paul writes some counsel in the first century, and their ideas are incredibly radical for that day in which they wrote them because marriage was very far from the design of God at that particular point in time. So today's instruction is going to be for a spouse who has a, <clears throat> for, for one spouse who has a spouse who is not a believer. And so he's going to give some great instructions, some great things of here's how, here's what this looks like, how you're going to respond. And today we're going to deal with how does a wife respond to an unbelieving husband. So if you'll remember a few, a few weeks ago, and maybe you weren't here, but let me just remind you, when we talked about slaves and how they were to relate to their masters, it was estimated that there were 60 million slaves in the first century at the time the Gospels were written throughout the Roman Empire. Rome would march and they would conquer a land and they would make those people slaves. It's been estimated by some historians that half of the population was enslaved to the other half of the population. And so... What happened in the midst of that is that the gospel began to go forth through Israel, through apostles and other people, and people came to faith who were slaves, and they wanted to know, now that I'm free on the inside in my salvation, how do I relate? Do I just get to walk away from my employment in this, in this reality of what's happening here? How do I deal with this? And so Peter writes, here's what you do. Paul writes about, here's how you respond. <clears throat> The very same thing was happening in marriages. So all over the Roman Empire, people had been forced to be married. It had been happening for um, four or five decades now. There was a forcing of, of marriage. And as the gospel went forth, many of the wives, because of how they were seen and valued within the culture, found the appeal and the call of Christianity very, very appealing. There was worth that was given to them. Jesus died for them. They are loved by him. And they came into faith. And these women came into faith. And now still don't have any rights. And they've come to faith. But their husband did not come to faith. And is continuing to worship either a Greek god or gods or the Roman gods. And so this dominated the early first century church. And these women were asking, these wives were asking... How do I relate to and respond to my husband who has rejected the claims of Jesus? I've come to faith. I love Jesus. The church is very important to me, but what do I do now in regard to all of this? And the wives, evidently, according to what Peter writes here, had a strategy of what they thought was going to be key to win their husband. But Peter's going to say, no, that's not the right strategy. And so he wanted to give them biblical counsel, not man-centered counsel. Now I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for a moment and then we'll get to 1 Peter um, chapter. Is it hot in here? Can you, Mike, can you turn the air down? Some of y'all aren't, but, um, and uh, I don't care about you, Carl. <laughs> hey, Kasten, can you hit that thermostat right there and take it down to like 73? Can you turn the fan on? It's 70, can you turn that fan on, Mark? Because Brittany... Brittany's like, I'm going to die. All right. 
Okay. Did we turn it down to 73? Is that good? Okay. All right. We're good. All right. I want to give some counsel if you are a teenage girl this morning, um, if you are a single woman this morning. Um, I want to I want to give some counsel because I want to, <clears throat> in our day and time, is a little bit different than the first century. The gospel began to go f- go forth in the Roman world, and many wives became believers. It was a little bit different setting, but the same situation. And so I want to talk just for a moment before we get into First uh, Peter chapter three, and I want to talk about some wise counsel for the unmarried. And in Second Corinthians chapter six, verse fourteen, let's let's read this text here all the way through verse 18, because I want to talk about being unequally yoked, and I want to talk about this in regard for our students and for single women, in regard to some things to think of to avoid finding yourself being married to someone who is an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Let me just stop here for a moment, because I, I, I think it's important to talk about that, because here's how people become married to an unbeliever. One setting is just simply this, is you get married, and nobody's a believer, but then somebody comes along, maybe a coworker, a family member, a neighbor, and they share Christ, and one of the spouses becomes a believer, comes and trusts Christ, gets excited about it, shares with their spouse, whether it's a husband or a wife, and that other spouse says, I'm not interested in that. And you begin to live in this relationship. So that's one setting. The other setting is you've got a believer who from counsel from maybe ministers or their church or friends and parents, and they are dating or engaged to a non-believer, and all the counsel says, do not do this. But a person goes ahead and does it anyway and finds themselves in a marriage relationship with someone who doesn't value Jesus, doesn't value His Word. And so how do you avoid that? One is if you're both married and you're both lost, and one, I mean, you're just, that's just the reality of things. But there's an avoidance of that if you are a Christ following person, that there's some counsel here that Paul gives that's really important. Yoke is an animal term. <clears throat> they used to, it's a wooden thing, and they used to yoke, they used to put two animals together. And those, we saw this in, the, in Nepal where they would yoke the oxen together that are plowing these rice fields, and they are walking together. But if one, and we saw this a few times, if one decides, man, I'm not going to walk in a straight line, I'm going to do my own thing, it causes chaos with what happens and takes place because you're not moving in the same direction. And the counsel of Paul, though is an animal term, he's saying this, do not, if you are a single person, whether you're a a man or a woman, do not yoke yourself together in a 
one of the primary places to do this is in a marriage relationship. And so he says, do not yoke yourself together because you're going to find that you're trying to follow God, but the other spouse is living for flesh or they're worshiping idols in regard to sports, hobbies, whatever the case may be. And that's going to create a very difficult dynamic in the relationship. And it's going to cause heartache. And it doesn't mean that you don't have a great marriage relationship, but God wants you as a believer to marry someone else who is a believer. And I want to give just three brief things that I think are important this morning. So if you're a dad and you've got daughters who are younger children, they are going to like somebody eventually. And, and whether you like it or not, they're going to. Mark, you've got three daughters. And you're going to have to deal with that reality. Nathan is dating my daughter back there. We like Nathan. But this counsel is for him, it's for Haven, it's for us, it's for, it's for those of us who know people. And here's the thing. The counsel is this, if you are single and you're a believer, never date a non-believer. It just should, you should just automatically say, this is not something I'm going to do. Do not do this. Do not date a non-believer. If you date a believer, there are some things you should think through. And things like this, does that person love God's word? Does that person love the local church? <clears throat> How does, if you're a young lady, watch that young man who claims to be a Christ follower. How does he treat his mom? Because he will likely treat you exactly the way he treats his mom in, in regard to those things. And so... Uh, what is their view of divorce? There are very important things to even talk to if someone you're dating or engaged to who is a Christ follower. And so the counsel is, do not date a non-believer. If you date a believer, there's some things to think through and talk through. And the third thing, I would just simply say this, do not, if you're a Christ follower, marry a non-believer. Yeah, but they're beautiful and they have a great job. So what? So what? God's purpose, according to 2 Corinthians 6.14, is to come out from among them. Do not yoke yourself with them. So there's wise counsel from the Scripture in regard to this area of not marrying someone, if you are a believer, who is a non-believer. Also, we will see in a moment <clears throat> that there's some advice. I tell you what, let's just read the text. Look at me in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll see what is not advised by Peter. Uh, three things, and then we'll begin to walk through uh, the text. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 3, and we'll read 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, or merely external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, which is more important, is very precious. Verse 5, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, 
Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so just a little commercial here. We're going to deal with the husband next week. Did you notice that the women have lots of issues being married to a husband who's a non-believer? They needed six verses of counsel because it was very difficult because of where they were in the culture to deal with because they were seen as as possessions. They were not really seen as people. Now, when Paul writes about it, he gives lots more instruction to the husband who is a Christian in a Christian marriage in how he is to lead. And so, again, the context here is how do you live in a mixed marriage? How do you make this work? And the first counsel is to the women. Let me just, let me just briefly share three things that Peter does not advise the woman to do. And one is to leave the unbelieving husband. Paul writes the same thing in 1 Corinthians seven thirteen. Listen to this. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Uh, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. But how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or they will come to faith? Or how do you know, husband, whether your wife will come to faith? So the counsel from both Peter and Paul is, if you have a spouse who's an unbeliever and they want to remain in the marriage, then you remain in the marriage. That's what the counsel is. You don't get to leave the marriages. And the second one is this, is, and we'll see this today, do not constantly badger, preach to, Leave notes everywhere for, pull the visor down and scripture falls down, whatever the case may be, you know, shoe polish on the, do not badger your unbelieving spouse to the point where they're going to get turned off from it. And Peter's going to give some counsel about that. And thirdly, Peter doesn't counsel them to demand their rights as a Christian. I am a believer now, I've been free, and you don't love Jesus, and so therefore um, I'm going to demand my rights. You have to do this, you have to do this. That is not the counsel that is given to the husband nor the wife. All right, let's begin to walk through the text. What does a wife do as an unbelieving spouse? And so from 1 through 7, Peter gives this great counsel. And the first thing that he tells the wife is this, is to accept the role that God has designed within the family, whether there is a believing husband or a non-believing husband. And the role that God has given the wife is a role of submitting to, subjecting herself to, or being submissive to. This is the first thing that Peter wants a believing wife to understand who has a husband who is not a believer. This is a foundational thing. And he says this, regardless of the spiritual condition of your husband God in the role of the family now that you are believer this is the role you are to embrace and by embracing this you are honoring Christ you are valuing his word and you are trusting that his counsel is good for you let me remind you and I of this word because here's the danger is that when you hear this word, because it's been so beat up in our culture today, that the word submission is really a beautiful word. It is a word of strength. It is not a word of weakness. And so I want to just deal with that for a moment. It is the Greek word hupoteso, and this is what it means. 
It means an orderly way. It's a military word that kind of de- kind of defined how militaries. There's an order to how things go, and so in God's design for the family, God has placed an order. It doesn't mean that one is has more value. It doesn't mean that one might, may not be smarter. We know this to be true, and some of the wives would say, "Amen." Carrie, you are going to say "Amen" in a moment. Some wives are smarter than their husbands. Did you say amen? Okay, you're trying to be nice this morning. So it may mean the the wife may be, yeah, I'm sorry, I made fun of your grandfather, I'm sorry, okay? Didn't like that. So it doesn't mean that the wife may not have, many wives have more skills than their husband do. Many wives are smarter, they're more orderly, they plan better, all of those kinds of things. And it doesn't matter about, so God's not talking about the husband is more important. There's an equality. Each are to submit to one another. But as God has ordained and designed the family, the role of the husband is headship, that he is the leader, but he is not a dictator. So this is what God is counseling. Even a wife who believes and loves Jesus, who has a husband who's continuing to go to the temple of Artemis and worship a false god. How is she to relate? She is to submit to the husband in this relationship. If he wants to remain with her, she is to submit in an orderly way. And again, by doing so, she's communicating to God and communicating to the husband, I am trusting God with this. I want you, husband, to come to faith. You're rejecting my faith. But I'm going to trust God in this, and I'm going to live my life before you. So here's what Peter is saying. Here's what Paul is saying when he writes the same counsel to wives. He is saying this, Will you be willing to trust God and place yourself in a position by my design underneath your husband as the leader of your family? And so he is calling the wife to be willing to take that position. Now, the wife can say, I'm not going to take that position, and it'll create more issues within the family. It creates issues in the family when the husband reads these words and says, this means, wife, you're a doormat for me. You're to do whatever I want to do. That is not what it teaches here. The husband is to lay his life down for the wife. You can read that in Ephesians 5. And so there's a mutual submissiveness to one another. But in this text, it is saying this, that in the role, God has designed the wife to be submissive to the headship of the husband, even if the husband is a non-believer. So this counsel sometimes is not tough because there's dynamic. I mean, it's not tough. It is tough because of the dynamic of certain family dynamics and family issues and because of what a husband who who a husband is and what a, a wife is like but this is the way God has designed things within the family so here's what he says to her Peter writes and says listen you accept God's call and his design in regard to this role and so as we begin to move on for this point I just want to I want to remind you I know something submission does not mean inferiority it doesn't mean that at all it doesn't mean someone who's inferior and when it is given it is to be given by the wife because God has designed it so and because it honors him and it is not to be demanded by the husband the husband is not to say hey submit to me wife this is to be a mutual submitting to one another the wife submits to God's plan to the husband the husband submits to God and he submits to the needs we'll talk about this next week 
Because he, he's going to say in verse 7, likewise, husbands, same idea, you submit. And Ephesians 5 talks about this too. There is a submissiveness to one another in the marriage relationship that makes it work. So submitting takes nothing from the dignity of a wife. Rather, it enhances a Christian woman's dignity because she is obeying God and accepting God's purpose and plan. And so it takes great integrity, I think, for a believing spouse to submit to an unbelieving husband. Great integrity for her to do what God says should be done in that relationship. One last thing before we move on. So an unbel- a, a believing wife submits even to a non-believing husband as the counsel here because of God's design for the marriage. And it says here, to your own husbands. And this is an important thing. Both the husband and the wife have an ownership of one another, and they are to be submissive to one another by God's design. And this phrase, to your own husband, indicates that he is hers as well, even though he is not a believer. And is an ownership because of this covenant relationship with one another. He is not greater than her, nor is she greater than he is. And so what, what is the aim? Why should she do this? He doesn't want to worship Jesus. Well, the aim in all of this, as I said a while ago, in our relationship to government, in our relationship in, to our employer, in our relationship to our spouse, is the aim is to win that non-believing person, non-believing people, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And in the marriage relationship, her aim is to win him who doesn't believe in Jesus by her godliness. Look at the next part of verse 1. So wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. This phrase, do not obey the word, means not allow yourself to be persuaded. So watch what Peter's saying here. We have a wasp in the room. Okay. Oh, well, okay. That won't be a distraction at all, but anyway. Um, So here's what he says. He says, listen, you have come to faith. You love Jesus. You're connected to church. You're growing. You're alive. You're worshiping. And you have shared your faith with your husband. And you've shared your faith with him. And he is not convinced. And he's going to continue to worship his Roman gods. So what do you do? Here's what Peter says. From that moment on, you do not continue to badger him to come to faith. You make your arguments by your actions, not by clever arguments and clever ideas and clever strategies. You make your argument for the gospel and why the gospel is important by living a life that enhances the beauty of your faith by living with integrity in that marriage to someone who does not believe. So look what he says. So that even if some do not obey the word, it means they reject the gospel. They were rejecting the gospel. And many first century wives were asking that question, how do I continue in my marriage when my husband rejects the very faith that I hold so dear to me that is my utmost priority? I've shared Jesus with him. Other people have shared with him. And he continues. He's looked at it. He's decided, I'm not going to follow this. And so Peter says, here's what you do. You're going to win them 
by your conduct. And this word may be one means to gain or acquire. If the husband continues to reject the gospel, they will be one to Christ other than trying to get them to Christian settings all the time to hear preaching. They're not going to come here. Some of you know that. So how do you preach? Now, everybody has to come to faith through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17 talks about that. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing what? Through the word of Christ. James writes about that in James 1, 18. The truth brings salvation. So they, if they ever come to salvation, it will be through the word of God. But the argument and the means that God is going to use in a non-believing husband's life is going to be the life of the woman by living her faith before the husband. So Peter says that their husband is not going to be won by some persuasive argument or nagging him into the kingdom. He says this, a life of faithfulness to Christ is going to speak louder in this kind of situation than anything else. This word conduct here, your translation may say conversation. Conduct is better. That they may, that so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. It speaks about a way of life, an integrity, or a godliness. So listen, that unbelieving husband is not going to come into the kingdom by being talked into it, by being manipulated into it. That is not going to bring him to repentance. And so Peter says, listen, belief always has effect on action. And so his counsel to the wife is, don't focus all your attention on the faith or the lack of faith of your non-believing husband. Focus your attention on your faith in the glory of Jesus and allow Jesus and the Spirit to refine you and to be a faithful witness before your non-believing husband. And it doesn't mean that if you do one, two, three, you know, you know this, we know this. Faith is not, if I follow one, two, three, four, then God automatically does this. God's not obligated for that. But the counsel here is, is this. If you will do this, God says, I will work. I will do something. I will speak. But you've got to trust me that this is how you respond and you do this. So the Christian wife should concentrate on her own Christian life and not on her husband's unbelief. Pray for him, but live with integrity before him. And ultimately, the scripture says here, Peter says, God will bring about the softening of his heart. So one, to, the, the object is to aim to win, not by clever arguments, by actions, but secondly, that a wife should always live aware of Christ's presence. And so look at the next part of verse, or first part of verse 2. That when they see you're respectful. This word, um, when they see, means viewing attentively, inspecting, and contemplating. So here's what Peter's saying. Watch. <clears throat> Listen. They know you've come to know Jesus. They've got an issue with it. They're not going to follow it. They've rejected it. But if you will not fight over that, but you will just trust God, work on your faith, pray, model, pray, model, trust, have somebody praying for you, have somebody praying for the husband, and they are watching, they are seeing, they are inspecting, and when they see that regardless of when they make fun of your faith or, or there's a, a little dig at that, 
They're going to continue to look at it, but if you'll continue to know that I'm ultimately living my faith to the glory of Jesus, not just primarily for the husband, and I'm going to trust God with this. God says, I will do something in regard to this. I will work on, the, on this, and, uh, on their heart. And Peter writes here, he says this, when they see your great reverence for God and your great respect, even though they put some digs at your faith, that will begin to work on their heart. And then he says this, not only are you to, number one, a life of actions over arguments, but to live aware of Christ's presence. But thirdly, and a believing wife should love purity, should love purity. And that's the third thing he says. This is how you're going to win your husband. And he says this, when they see you're respectful and pure conduct. So a believing wife should not lower her standards because a non-believing husband thinks these kind of things are appropriate whatever the case may be but that believing wife says i know he doesn't know the lord but i'm going to do some things that don't please the lord because i'm trying to make sure that he's going to be one to faith the wife should keep her purity in regard to things that are really important sometimes i hesitate to say things and but i'm going to go ahead and say it okay I read a lot in regard to what happens in church culture, and I've talked to a number of minister friends. I've been amazed um, over the last um, six or seven years of the conversations with my minister friends and some of the things I've read of how Christian, church-going, married people think adding pornography to their sex life is enhancing their sex life. And it's amazing the thinking in regard to that. And it just doesn't. We are to have a sexual relationship with our spouse, period. We are to see nudity if you're married with your spouse only. It is not to go beyond that, period. And for people to think, to add that's going to enhance something, robs from what Peter's talking about here, the pure conduct that glorifies God and honors God. And so if you're a a wife here today, not just in that area, but your non-believing husband encourages you to do things that do not please God, I want to say to you today, no, you do what pleases God first. And just trust God with that, regardless of whatever it may bring up in the situation. All right, let's move on. Look at verse 4. So a wife should accept God's call to a role, which is submissiveness. She is... Her aim is to win him by her godliness. And thirdly, she is to have an authentic heart. Look at verse 4. But he says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, which is the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is beautiful in God's life. You know what? My my notes got stuck together. I want to talk about, we skipped a whole uh, verse 3. How about verse 3? Let's don't skip a verse. Look at verse 3. Um, the adorning life. And he just gives some great counsel here. Look at verse 3. He just says this. He says, listen, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. So look up here just for a moment. I'm not going to hammer on this. He's not saying you can't do this. He's saying this. Do not let this be the primary thing about your life. So what was happening in the first century was this. And it happens today. A wife has an un, a non-believing husband, and so she thinks to herself, if I will look better, 
then he, this is going to soften his heart, and there's all this focus on the outside. Um, are you amazed? We were at uh, Keenan's birthday was um, was a Wednesday, and so we went to the zoo. And I, are you amazed at the hair color that you see when you're out in public places? You're like, okay, nobody's born with that hair color, you know. And uh, this is not anything new. In the first century, because of the status women have, they would turn and focus because sometimes they couldn't even go out in public. They had a huge focus on the externals. Green hair and purple hair in the first century were not unusual. Growing long hair and these big beehive hairdos, that is something that just didn't take place in the 50s. That was something that took place about 2,000 years ago. And women have by nature a more natural tendency to be focused on the outside. And so here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, wives, you're not going to win him by more makeup. You're not going to win him to faith by better clothing. You're not going to win him by flashy earrings. You're not going to win him by fancy hair. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit wants to work on your heart, and He works on your heart. He's going to use your integrity and your godliness to have uh, an influence upon your husband. So God values the godliness of an inside life, and that's what He's going to use in a marriage. So this idea of adorning should drive a Christian wife in a marriage with a non-believing husband to adorn herself with godliness and modesty should be the trick of the day. I remember Pam and I talked about this. You know, I was a youth I started youth ministry in the late 80s. And we, we began to talk about just to see the way young girls were dressing in the late 80s and 90s. And we just thought, can you imagine what it's going to be like 25 years from now? And we're there now. And it is amazing. Some of your school teachers, and just you just need to go to the mall or Walmart and just look at things. And it's just amazing is we have pushed the line in regard to modesty to where there almost isn't even a line anymore. And it continues to do that because the next generation always takes things a little bit further for the most part. And I think a Christian young girl and a Christian wife should live in such a way to dress that doesn't draw attention to the body but communicates this is who I am. These kind of things, this outward appearance, are not, they can never be a substitute for godly character, ever. They can never be a substitute for godly character. So here's what Peter says. Here's what you need. You need an authentic heart. Verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is precious. This is what God values. So he says, listen, it's not the outside stuff, it's the inside stuff. This should flow out a heart of godliness. And in a culture that you and I live in, where modesty and godliness is mocked and not encouraged, sexual expression is glorified, this teaching here, I believe this morning, is incredibly critical. A wife should model her life and, and guard her life in such a way that godliness and integrity is the most important thing. And he, she should work on the hidden person on the heart, the inside life of their life. That's where the Holy Spirit works. And that's where the Holy Spirit is going to do His work to bring your husband to faith. This word hidden here means that which is concealed and that which is not apparent by dress 
or by ornament. It's that part that lies within us, and it should be important. You and I know this. You can be as beautiful as you want to be, but if you have loose morals and no integrity, after a while, there's nothing attractive about that at all. So you can dress up a pig, it's still a pig. And that's why the, val- the Scripture here values integrity, purity, godliness, because there's a beauty to that that God affirms and that God is going to use. And so this love of God, this focusing on an inner godliness, God is going to use that of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now I want to talk about those for a moment. The word gentle is very unique. In Matthew 11, Jesus, the only time in the four Gospels, Jesus describes what his personality is like. It's the only time he does it. He says, this is what I'm like. And this is what he says, Matthew eleven twenty eight. You'll find these words familiar. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And listen to what he says. For I am, he says, listen, this is what I'm like. If you'll yoke with me and walk with me, here's the deal. This is what I'm like. I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm not going to think about myself. I'm going to be focused on your needs. I'm going to love you. I'm going to walk in a way to call you to follow and walk the same row as me. And when you do that, you're going to find, Jesus says, if you, if you do this, if you will yoke with me, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls when you unite with me. You'll find rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is what? It's light. That's the reality. Watch this. Wife who may be here this morning who doesn't have a believing husband. He is calling you to be like Jesus. To live like Jesus with a gentle spirit that just says this to a, to a husband who does not believe. He says, listen, you just continue to be like Jesus. Now this word gentle is another word called meek. Meek does not equal weak. I want you to say that with me. Weak does not equal weak. That's not what meek means. The Greeks used meek to describe Alexander the Great's horse. It was white. The leader stood on the horse. If that horse wanted to, it could throw Alexander the Great off of that. It could stomp him to death. But what did the horse do? It was stronger, but it submitted to the leader and submitted in such a way even though it had the greater strength. So the word meek and the word gentle here means a strength that is under control. So here's what Peter in the Scripture is counseling. A wife who's married to a non-believer is that there is to be a strength in your trust to God to allow Him to work on your inner character. And there's a strength there that just says, God, I'm going to trust you in this. It's a picture of somebody who's really strong. And it's a picture of somebody who's just like Jesus. Now also the word quiet. That means this, wives, you just never say anything at church. I don't want to hear anything from you, Brittany. Nothing. Is that what that means? That is not what that means. <laughs> RC says yes. No, or, or, oh no. <laughs> Ed, Ed's getting RC in trouble. Yeah, it's real easy down the road to say that. Yeah, yeah. Here's what quiet spirit means. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that a woman should be silent and never talk. But it means having a disposition where you as a woman are not always going around demanding your rights or demanding to be heard or demanding to be noticed. It's an encouragement to be wise and use words at the proper time. 
to exercise wisdom in regard to that. It doesn't mean silence. It means there's just a wisdom that's there to trust in Him. So it's a description of a woman who has a calm demeanor and possesses a mind that says this, I'm living in a difficult situation. Jesus is the passion of my life. But my husband hates Jesus. Continues to reject Jesus. So what do I do? Well, I'm going to live a life of integrity and godliness and I'm going to trust. And I'm going to be gentle even when he says certain things because that's the way Jesus was. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So I'm just going to trust and I'm going to trust and I'm going to trust and I'm going to trust. And as I do so, that kind of life, a gentle and quiet spirit, watch what it says here, is precious in whose sight? God's sight. That's the kind of life that God is going to honor. So godly character matters. And a husband, even though the husband is maybe lost, will notice those things. We men are dumb a lot of times. I will absolutely put us at the first line. But deep in the heart of a man, he will know this. He knows gentleness, and he knows the value of it. He knows the beauty of purity, whatever he may say. He knows the magnificence of a faithful heart in a woman. I felt more in love with my wife as she went through chemo than any other time of the 30 years of marriage because I watched her trust in God through all of that. And I saw the beauty of what God was doing in her in the midst of her walking through cancer. So wives, I want to tell you, teenage girls, work on your integrity. Work on your godliness. God will use that. And and the fact that Peter writes these words here is that he is saying, listen, if you want to secure the affection of your husband, you live this way. You live like Jesus. You live like Jesus. Because having the character of Christ is the greatest gift that you can give your marriage. And if you're not making that the primary thing, then the focus gets off and it's in the wrong place. He closes with this. There's an appropriate model for wives. And so here's, here's the picture. Guess who you ought to read? Women. The ladies of the Old Testament. Look how they live their lives. Look, at, look, look how they live faithful. Look at women since the church was born who lived faithful lives. Read books about them. Read biographies. Look at those things. And the godliness that exudes from their lives, they become the appropriate models for our lives. I don't know what it's like for you, but we do this as well. In our fancy dates at Walmart on Friday mornings, you have to go to the checkout stand. What's always at the checkout stand? Gossip magazines and other magazines. There's never a man on the cover of those magazines. Never once is there a man on the cover of those magazines. And we call those people, those women on those magazines, we call them what? What are they called? It starts with them. Models. They're not models. They're not an appropriate model. All of that is about flesh. It's about selfishness. It's about the grat- gratifying the flesh. So if you want to know how do, I, how do I live this way, to honor God in such a way, I, the encouragement is look at the women of old. And, and there's an example used here, and it's Sarah. And somebody here may say, well, Sarah got to be married to Abraham, the father of faith. She wasn't married to my husband. Can I remind you that Abraham was not the greatest man? You remember what he did twice to Sarah? 
in Philistia and in Egypt, he said, hey, this is not my wife, this is my sister. And they took her and were about to put her in the harem where she would have sex with the Pharaoh and the leader anytime he wanted to have sex with her. He did that twice. You think you have a difficult marriage? Well, that's what Abraham did with her. And you know what Sarah continued to do in the midst of that in Egypt and Philistia and other things? She just trusted God. She just trusted God even though her husband was an idiot a couple of times. She was really old when God said, hey, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And Abraham is talking and Sarah, what does she do? She laughs. It's like, oh, whatever. And she kind of laughs. But then she says to him, how can, how can, she uses these words. Says, this is Genesis eighteen twelve. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out, I am an old lady. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? I read this verse on the plane coming back from Asia. And I thought, you know, if you lady, if you wives would just call us Lord, that would probably fix things. And then I listened to a sermon this week, and the pastor, he said the same thing. I was like, yeah, that would just, just call us Lord. That would really fix a lot of things. This word means Mr., Sir. It's a, it's a term of respect. And so when Sarah says, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? This idea of having a son. And she just continued to give respect to Abraham. And he was the benefit of that. And wives, I would say to you, your, your lost husband will be the benefit of your godliness. He doesn't know it, and he may laugh at it, he may reject it, but you, he will be ultimately the benefit of that. It took Abraham about 125 years to grow up to finally kind of get it together. So some of you wives are going to have to, you're probably not going to live to be 125, but if you do, just continue to wait and trust. And if you do what's right, what does God always say he'll do? He'll honor that. He will honor that. All right. That's the counsel for a wife. Next week, we will talk about what's the counsel for a husband who has a non-believing wife who doesn't want to follow the Lord. Let's pray.